I'm Lior Phillips, host of This Must Be The Gig. We're a weekly podcast that documents everything about the world of live music. Speaking with choreographers, costume and set designers, the people who run beloved venues and festivals, and, of course, speaking with musicians about that one gig that changed their lives. Get your peek behind the curtain at consequenceofsound.net, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to State of the Empire, Consequence of Sound's Lucasfilm podcast, where we look for news in Alderaan places. Yeah, normally this is a Star Wars podcast with shades of Indiana Jones and Willow thrown in, but this time we're leaning hard into that Lucasfilm aspect, and we'll tell you why in just a moment. But first, who am I? Well, I'm Cap. I'm Doug. And I'm Matt. In this episode, we're discussing the 1983 animated feature produced by Lucasfilm, directed by John Cordy and Charles Swenson. It's Twice Upon a Time, a movie that none of us had ever seen before or heard of. (laughs) But when we were looking at, you know, Lucasfilm as an entity on Wikipedia, we saw a list of movies and we were like, you know, some of these we know about. Right. They're obvious tentpole things like... Howard the Duck, and Tucker, A Man in His Dream. But there were things that were just very strange on there, not the least of which was this early animated feature coming out the same year as Jedi. Academy Award winner John Cordy and Lucasfilm Limited take you to a place so far out, you'll never, never land. Wow. Which is, it's a pretty great tagline. Yeah, yeah, pretty good. And my first instinct is like, is this really a Lucasfilm movie or is this just like an independent film that Lucas was like, let's show that off, you know? But no, it's uh it's legit. <laughs> well, that's that's an interesting way to look at it. I mean, it is legit. It says Lucasfilm on it. Mm-hmm. George Lucas was integral in making this film possible. Right. However, it's not a Lucasfilm movie in the same way that even Tucker is a Lucasfilm movie. Right. As we dug deeper into this film after tracking it down, getting a copy, the three of us watching it, we did discover just how much of a Lucasfilm it truly is. And let me tell you the short version up front. The answer is not much. But it is the sort of thing that would not have happened had it not been for George Lucas and his affinity for technological innovation and uh, and his relationship with Southern Californian let's say, avant-garde film directors. Mm -hmm. So Twice Upon a Time is, in theory, a children's movie, Mm -hmm. but there are are two versions of it, one which is rated PG, though it would not be PG in this day and age. It'd be PG-13, and another is unrated, which is actually a G film. Mm -hmm. That's complicated. (laughs) It's very complicated. So the one that was released in theaters is the PG film, and the one that the creator wanted to come out was the one that was safer for everybody. Right. But there was a, a situation with one of the producers, and he decided, you know what? No, uh, this needs more edge. I'm a little nervous. And instead of going with the safer route for being more, uh, for opening it up to, let's say, a wider audience by being able to make the the general comparison that's still prevalent to this day of animation equals children's product, he said, you know what? No, <laughs> let's, get, let's get edgy. And if you look at this movie, and you should very much look at this movie, you should go track down that trailer right now and watch it. 
you're going to see something that looks like maybe nothing you've ever seen before. Mm -hmm. And I mean, nothing that you've ever seen before, even if you're a diehard animation fan. In fact, the one place where you may have seen it is if you are old enough to have grown up on classic children's public broadcast television, such as Electric Company and early Sesame Street, because John Cordy was the man behind uh, a lot of shorts from both those programs where he honed the specific technique that is used throughout the length of this feature film. It's called Lumage, which is short for luminous image. And it uses plastic, other transparent materials, special paper colored with special dyes, as they said in the commentary, um, and uh, photo transparencies animated on a light table. So this is backlit animation hmm, i didn't know that part of it yeah this is a i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of effects that are possible in in this film in camera lighting effects that would not be possible in in other in any other animation and then it looked like there was a couple model shots early on yes there's a lot there this this film combines live action traditional 2D animation but done in this lumage style and stop motion and the uh, the shots with miniatures are uh, very complicated shots which we will get into yeah uh, see there's a DVD out which contains both versions of the film and also a uh, commentary with a lot of the creators behind this picture I, I watched both versions but not the commentary. The commentary, uh, it paints an interesting story, and there's so, there's so much more to know about Twice Upon a Time. But here's what you should know about Twice Upon a Time. One is, if you haven't checked out that trailer and you're able to do so again right now, check it out. Um, two, this movie is not good. <laughs> it, Just get that out there. Yeah, let's, let's put that out there. It's not a good movie. It's not a terrible it's movie. It's not a terrible movie. It's not, it's not a bad film. Um, but it is... It's just... It's it got, reaches. It, yeah, it reaches. It's got a bunch of unsuccessful ideas, but it is fascinating and beautiful and a real genuine feast for the eyes. It's a shame the sucker isn't on Blu-ray because it's so incredible to behold. There's just so much there. Um, and lots of, like, the style of animation enabled them to do a lot of minute detail that is just, it's, it's incredible. There's something that... Uh, Terry Gilliam fans will know is the hamster effect. Uh, I think believe that's what it's called. Where just of the you build a scene and there's so many layers to it, and there's like on top of everything else, there's a silhouette of a hamster running in a in a ball on the side of the screen. Like there's just so much layers to any given shot, and that happens often in this because I mean in this style of animation with the unique way which we'll be exploring in a little bit that it was made, it offered the animators so many opportunities to go deeper and get weirder and try out all sorts of things, which is what puts it in the spirit of Lucasfilm, even though it is, in a way, also disparate from what we commonly understand as mainstream Lucasfilm properties. Mm -hmm. Now, you might be asking yourselves, or us, hey, why are you talking about this? <laughs> is, there, is there an anniversary? Is there something? No, I mean, it's uh, mostly... It's that we celebrate on this show the legacy of Lucasfilm. We found something very fascinating about it. We're still celebrating Willow, all 30th anniversary year. But, um, you know, Star Wars news is a bit slow right now. And every now and then we might just fill a gap with, um, with some, some other Lucasfilm content. That said, we might also fill a gap with the deafening silence of maybe only doing one State of the Empire a month. 
hard to say. We're all juggling a lot of projects, and as the end of the year approaches, we tend to get really damn busy. So, uh, just fair warning that, uh, one, we're not going to talk about Star Wars in this episode, as <laughs> if you hadn't figured that out already, and two, uh, that maybe, just maybe, uh, in the coming months, there'll only be one State of the Empire month, but we don't know that. Let's say, at the very least, there will be one. Mm-hmm. There might be two, and two is normal. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, anyhow... We're going we're gonna to dive into this. We're going to talk about the plot. We're going to talk about all the crazy stuff behind the scenes. Um, we're going to talk about the people who are major industry leaders now who cut their chops on this film um, and why it's worth a look even though uh, I'm, I'm not a, I, I didn't love it as a, right. as a movie. Right. Um, but, you know, the plot, they attempted a lot. There's a lot of... A lot of complicated ideas here. So, Doug and Matt, it's been a while since we've all watched the film. Uh-huh. I was wondering if uh, you two individually might like to take a stab or a collaborative stab at describing what the hell this movie's about. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'd be interested in a collaborative uh, description because I— Yeah, just jam. Because I, 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 <laughs> that's what I they did when they made this team. I hazard to guess that I remember more than, than Matt does. Well, you have seen it twice. That's true. Yeah, definitely. I think I, I would have had a hard time uh, conveying the plot after after seeing it, like, as soon as the credits rolled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very much so. But, yeah, no, this should be a fun exercise. So, so in broad strokes, there is a magical world separate from ours that sort of, like, lives parallel to ours. It's like this dream world, right? Mm-hmm. And in the dream world, they uh, create our dreams that we dream every night. We go to sleep. The dreams come out and they they fly into our heads and they make us happy. And in doing so, we humans have better lives and improve the world around us, I guess is what the message was. That was the idea. Like they, the, the dream making was, was an important process. Mm-hmm. And the bad guys in this dream world are making nightmares because they want bad things to happen. And so they'll send out the 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 bad dreams which take the form of these like vultures uh to intercept the good dreams before they get to us or they'll place a bad dream in us and and and, and, our... and what are the good dreams doug what are those represented by uh i get i i'm probably wrong but i'm i'm remembering they look like little like they look like those little toys in the 70s with the feet and like little du- dust bunnies or whatever they're like the little they're like little. They're like the little soot creatures from the from a from Spirited Away. What are what? Am I getting this right? What, what? You're getting there. That's what they look. What they look like. I do remember they were called. I think figments, or you're close. Right? Okay, because I because I remember drawing a drawing a comparison to um, Dreamfinder and Figment at Epcot with what? the idea like. Just they came out around the same time, Epcot and and this film. So like I was sort of like, oh okay, they're all kind of coming in on the same idea. But that's all I. Well, you I got, don't remember what you they just got to go like. a little bit more produce section with it. These are figmen oh, of fig imagination. Men. Yeah, figmen <laughs> of imagination. It's one of the worst puns in the entire yeah, movie. It is, and um, that makes more sense. Yeah, so it's like, oh, figmen go, and they're like. Wee, wee. And they bounce around like like fleas, but they you know they and they release them into the village, and they all and then it's superimposed over real photos and sometimes moving images of humans sleeping, average humans in their ordinary lives just asleep in bed, and these things wee and they bounce up across the bedroom and they bounce on the bed and they hit you on the noggin and they 
they give you a happy dream. Um, and when the vultures come in, representing the nightmares, usually they intercept the the figmen, and they drop a bomb. <laughs> it's like a it's like a nightmare bomb, and it looks literally like an atomic bomb, like it's got that finned you know look to it or whatever. And they drop it on you, and it's, and it hits you, and then you just see the humans being like, oh no, and like they just get this grimace, painful look on their face, like they're having a nightmare. Um, so that's like the world, right? So <laughs> to dig into the plot, let's let's time for Matt. Matt, dig, yeah, dig into the plot. Here. We, what do you oh, what do you remember? Gosh. How does this start as far as like the plot goes? Like we've established the rules of the world, kind of. Well, the <laughs> the the king of of the good dreams and the figmen, he gets kidnapped by the nightmare uh, equivalent. I guess I was jeez, uh, this is really no, 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 that's <laughs> no? What happens. Um, it's not, it's, um, it's the guy, it's the guy who releases the figmen in the real world. Like he gets like the, the, he gets the letter or whatever, the, the letter or the phone call, he gets the message to, all right, release the dreams. They're ready. And he's the guy who sets off the figmen. That guy gets yeah, kidnapped. His, his name's Greensleeves. He's basically the figman wrangler. Yeah, he's like the wizard oh. of the of the whatever. And he, and he's so he controls them and tells them where to go. He gets kidnapped. Yeah, so, for some reason I remembered him as like a king like character. I don't know why. Yeah. Well, he's the brother of the king of the of the oh. land of Frivoli, yeah. which is where good dreams come from. Oh gosh. And um, his niece, I want to say. Yes. Um. The princess, she, uh, she worries. I guess she worries because she hasn't heard from him or something. She finds right. an SOS letter. Right. Okay. She finds an SOS letter that something bad happened, and she brings it to the king. And it's like we have to investigate. This could be bad. This could be whatever. And he's like, "Oh, yes, my dear. I'll take a look." And he, like he he like takes the letters. Don't you worry about it. And then when she leaves, he says something along the lines of. Oh, one of these days I'm gonna have to learn how to read. And he throws the letter away, and it just goes down this like pneumatic tube of thump of like where all the letters go. So he ain't doing diddly squat. And uh, then our our, and then enter Garfield, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Garfield. Now, when you say Garfield, we mean the the voice actor who played Garfield and Peter Venkman and Peter Venkman on the real Ghostbusters. Lorenzo cartoon. Music. Yes, none other. He plays Ralph, the all-purpose animal, a shapeshifter. Yeah, it's, it's a shapeshifting animal that he can. He's kind of like Jake the Dog from Adventure Time, and he is a lot like Jake the Dog. Uh, you're gonna hear me reference a lot of other cartoons because I really, and I mean this sincerely, I think a lot of things that we know today lifted from this movie. Well, what, what's interesting, I, a good spot to jump in is the one thing I did, like, discover about this movie afterwards when looking up a few things is that there's actually a lot of Ralph the All-Purpose Animal, like, fan art online. I don't want, I'm like, not interested in that. Like, some, no, like, some good, some bad. I think it, it, it has a lot to do with uh, Lorenzo music. Like, I think just a lot of, you know, very well-respected voice actor. And I think yeah. that j this character kind of just joined the pantheon of, like, everything that that he did yeah so but it is interesting to see that like that aspect of this movie i mean like has endured like there's a lot of like deviant art of uh, uh fan art drawings interested. and well no like, Doug, it's, on deviant art you're not allowed to have no, I know, sexual I know. situations yeah yeah <laughs> just i've just i'm this is that's a slippery slope but once you go it, down that. this might actually be and i could be wrong about this but this might actually be the only feature starring role lorenzo music ever had that's a shame if that's true. It is a shame. It might be. I don't know. There's plenty of other opportunities of like, you know, lesser Smurf films or something yeah. for him to have shown up in somehow. I'm not sure. And and Matt, you went to 
Garfield because he's like an orange brown pet shaped like a dog cat mix kind of thing. He's like a dog with but like also Lorenzo Music voiced Garfield. Well, and well, Garfield, yes, and we we started with that, but just like but even the look of him is reminiscent True. of of a yes. small yes and you know household animal. And he's morose. <laughs> yes. Hey, what are we doing today? You know, it's just very. It's just oh eh. good. Okay, oh, great. Okay. Well. <laughs> and um, he has, I guess, a sidekick. Yeah. I can't sort remember of. the sidekick's name. Uh, that's appropriate because uh, he can't speak it. His name's Mum, short for Mumford. Right, and he's so he's a human, well, humanoid rather, I guess, who never speaks, and they just get into shenanigans together. Mm-hmm. They're working in the factory, and I don't know what they're making. If they're making dreams or if they're making something, but they they fuck up in the factory. They make a big spill, and they're like, "That's it, you're fired!" And they kick them out of the factory, and they have to get a new job as the garbage men. And so their job is to take like the leftover scraps of whatever the factor is making, which is I'm guessing dreams or something. And they have to go pick it all up and take it to a landfill. That's their job. And for some reason, while they're doing that, like that's when the the princess finds them because she wants help to find her uncle because she knows her uncle's in trouble. Yeah. And the princess is named Flora Fauna, by the way. Um, and yeah, I mean, let's, let's, we can, we can hand wave and breeze through this, but basically she's looking for some heroes and this is the best she's got. Right. Um, now I guess to pause there because the movie actually opens on the villain. Um, and in fact, when I sat down to watch it, this opening scene got me way more pumped for the movie than I probably should have been because I loved, I just loved the introduction of this villain. Because it was so not what I was expecting. Well, and all the animation leading up to it is just like, it's holy shit. Yeah. I mean, uh, this again You've never seen anything like this in your life. Yeah. There's nothing else like it. It's utterly unique. So it's it's model work mixed with like this free fl- flying camera, but done with th- these paper cutouts. And it's this, this crazy, you're not even quite sure how they do it. And then it, it, this crane takes you into like the sort of darker area where, uh, where the nightmares, I guess, where, where the, the bad guy is based out of. And it's kind of like a Blade Runnery, foggy neon lit kind of thing and you get into this castle we get to the top of this tower which is like an atrium for all these vultures just all sitting in there like waiting to you know go on their midnight ride or whatever and the spotlight hits the floor on the on the on the bottom floor of the tower and our villain comes in who's this little short squat guy and um he's just this weird little guy with mustache and he's like wearing dark sunglasses and the first spoken words out of his mouth as he's addressing his army, much like the wicked witch of the West, you know, to her, to her flying monkeys. He starts with like, all right, you assholes, listen up. (laughs) And you're like, what? And it's like the goofiest (laughs) voice. And his attitude is just so out of left field. I was like, this could be amazing. <laughs> I'm like, I am. I I don't know. Clearly, this is the bad guy, but I am behind him 100. percent I gotta see what this bad guy does. I gotta know his plan, and I want to be part of it. It's very, uh, I don't want to say childish, but it's definitely very irreverent and immature, but in a way that like, I don't want to say charming, but it's definitely like it pulls you. It's charismatic and it's memorable. Yeah, it's a memorable attitude that this villain has. That's not your stereotypical mustache twirling villain who just wants to rule the world it's like he's he's kind of like a more put together ice king yeah and he he's he's way more gross than ice king is and debatable uh, i guess it is debatable but it's like but he's 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 more overtly gross and like um he like talks shit to his vultures but then he has a pet rat 
that he calls Ratatouille, which I think is fucking hilarious because it just ties into the more Pixar inspiration of Ratatouille and all the other shit. But this rat... Fun fact, uh, art director Harley Jessup is now and has been for quite some time a Pixar employee. There you go. I believe it. It's just like it's perfect. So he's got this pet rat named Ratatouille, but it's like it's a really fat big rat. It's like the size of a cat. And it's like a, it's like a living garbage disposal. It'll literally eat anything. And he babies it and talks to it like he truly loves it. So it's like you got this villain who's gross and just weird and he's mean to like the vultures even though they're big and scary and intimidating looking but he's got this pet rat which is this gross little piece of shit that he adores and it's so you get these weird two sides to this guy where i just i loved it another side he was production designer for ratatouille well fuck me that's like that's perfect (laughs) great i love it he's like oh little ratatouille i love you and he kisses it i'm like i love this guy i love this guy in ratatouille i want to see them have a spinoff movie doing i just want to see them go on vacation somewhere and his name is synonymous botch synonymous bot yeah like not bosh but botch like he botched the job right um anyway so when you get back to our heroes at the halfway to the landfill and princess florifana finds them he through like a magic magic viewing thing is able to find them somehow, and he's a, a, like, a gorilla with a TV in its chest. Yes, the gorilla with a TV in its chest <laughs> shows them the images of this, and uh, he decides to intercept them and trick them to coming back to his castle under the guise of being like a good guy who like wants to help them, and gives them a presentation about this plan and everything. And and uh, when he's giving them a tour of his castle, he's just saying the silliest, funniest shit that just like. I mean, yeah, it's it's edgy and it's very irreverent, but it was memorable. It was just like I don't know. It's it's so hard to explain. Um, he sends them. What what does he ask them to do? He sends them on the quest. They think they're gonna go help. Yeah, try the to figure that. Matt, do you do you recall what what their um what Mum and Ralph were sent to Din the what they call the Earth World to do, which is a it's a black and white world by the way. Our world is called Din and it's black and white. Right. And everyone moves too fast. There. I think I remember, but I want to see if Matt remembers. They were sent to retrieve, was it like the cosmic clock? I just remember he, he, cosmic yeah. clock. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you did okay. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I guess what that does is you can control time. They never really say, mm-hmm. but I think if you hold the cosmic clock, you control time itself. So their job is to go get it, go into the human world and get it. And I remember thinking like, Oh shit! They're going into the human world. This will be interesting. You know, it just it just seems like an interesting situation, where kind of like Toy Story or Monsters. You know, where you have your special world and the in the ordinary world clashing. I thought this was really going to go in that direction, but as soon as they get into the real world, it felt a little more cheap. Like it's just them pasted over images, like stock photos. You know, it kind of lost a little bit of the wonder because it, the ordinary world was boring and what I'm used to. So them coming into Though the order- it was shot from very low angles. Yeah. I mean, it still is an interesting story. It was just, it it was so fantastical to begin with, it seemed plain once they came to the human world. Um, they finally f- find the clock and like they, what is it? Like they, they break it somehow and they get like a spring from it. Well, they, they were actually tasked with taking out the main spring from the cosmic gotcha. clock. Gotcha. Okay. So when they take out the main spring- time stops for for the human world so humans everywhere that they are whether they're at work whether they're at home they just freeze in place and that's part of the villain master plan because once time has stopped 
they're going to release the vultures with all the bombs for nightmares and just put like several bombs on every single person so that once time starts up again, all the bombs are going to go off and they're going to all going to have like the worst nightmares ever. I don't know what happens then. (laughs) I don't know what's supposed to happen after they all go, ah, fuck, a terrible nightmare. Uh, I'm not sure they ever say. Yeah, but that's the plan. And but they kind of tell you that humans having good dreams makes them better people. So I'm guessing that if you have nightmares, if everyone has nightmares all the time and they're like the worst nightmares ever because it's like magnified like 10 times worse than normal, then I guess everyone's going to be a piece of shit. They don't really say. Well, and at this point in the film, there's still two other characters that haven't been introduced. Oh, yeah. The um, (laughs) what's his face? Hero for hire. (laughs) Like whatever he is. Yeah. The toxically masculine superhero Rod Rescue Man. Rod Rescue Man. Yeah. He is awful. Off uh, like at first I'm like oh this could be funny then it, then it got awful pretty quick yeah then then he turns into a rapist yeah like he at first he was misogynistic then sexist then rapist <laughs> like it's took a nosedive like pretty much from the moment you meet him uh and what's the other character oh the fairy godmother the FGM yeah yeah who voiced her was that someone uh, that was Judith Cahan. Okay, yeah. Had the, the sort of the very Brooklyn kind of like godmother, grandmother, just, what do you want from me? I'm just a fairy godmother. Blah, blah, blah. Just, it just kind of is their guide on this journey, telling them where to go, but isn't really that helpful. But that's kind of the joke. It's kind of the funny thing. Um, and then they save the day. Yeah. But yeah. So that, but that's it. I mean, I don't know how long we just spent dissecting this plot, but it's a hot mess. Yeah. And it, even then, it's still kind of fuzzy like what the point was and like what everyone's goals were um which is further convoluted by a notable trait of the film which is not necessarily a good thing but it's an interesting thing which is that all the cast are improv actors and it is relatively improv yeah especially the 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 harder rated pg version that we saw yeah like it's like you can just tell that See, okay, so comparing the two between the the unrated version, which is more child friendly, and the PG version, which is more teenage oriented, I guess I don't know. I don't know what the official goal was, but they made it more edgy. The only thing that changes is dialogue. Yeah, the only thing that changed was the dialogue. So it's like certain scenes where you don't see characters' lips moving. Otherwise, suddenly there's dialogue. Like if you're facing away, and what I mean, you don't see them moving. I mean, like they're facing away from the camera, or their face is hidden and they're coming from off screen somewhere. They'll be saying something, and it's usually funny or weird or gross or you know whatever, and just gives it this weird edge. But with the unrated child-friendly version. All the dialogue is pretty on the nose, pretty standard villainy stuff. Like that that wonderful moment in the beginning where it's like, all right, you assholes, listen up. You're going to go out there and some of you may die, but, you know, that just happens sometimes and I don't really care, but, you know, whatever, do a good job. Goodbye. Like that attitude is replaced with similar voice, but he's just like, all right, you, you, you vultures, it's time to do our duty. Go out there and send off those nightmares and, and do evil because that's what we do. Ha, ha, ha. It was just like... Oh, this is boring. You know, it was it was very unremarkable and unmemorable. But as soon as, so, I feel very torn because on one hand, the the creator wanted to do something that children could enjoy, but it wouldn't have been very memorable. And on the other hand, yeah, the other one's a little bit more gross. It's a little bit more edgy. It's not what the creator wanted, but I remember it. You know, like I remember this villain. I remember the weird shit that he said. John Cordy, the creator. His uh, Academy Award came from being the uh, the person behind the 1977 Best Documentary 
win. Who are the DeBolts, and where did they get 19 kids? <laughs> Which is about a family that adopts severely disabled war orphans. Oh, wow. So, like, hmm. I it's a whimsical title. I assume the movie's kind of funny, maybe. I just am guessing or, here. Sounds like a big bummer. But, yeah, it does sound like a big bummer. Um, but it was, you know, it was one of those, it, it socially landed in a big way in 1977. And what's interesting about his work is the fact that this is a 1983 movie, 1983, where the decade's presence was already very much in full swing and yeah. very, very aware of itself. Yeah. This thing feels like the 1970s animation scene yes. incarnate. It is too old. It was it was not fashionable. Nothing about this movie is incredible, but nothing about the character design, the way that the the way that the dialogue um, and the jokes were playing off against each other. They were all so indicative of, of like more like Ralph Bakshi's 70s work yeah. than anything from the 80s. This is not an 80s movie. It's weird when you when you remind me that it came out in 1983. I'm like, dude. Raiders of the Lost Ark had already come out, you know? Like, that's Lucasfilm in full swing, you know? Even outside of Star Wars. That's Luke, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, the world had changed, and this really does feel like a late 70s thing. And 1977, that's the year Star Wars came out. So George is sitting in the audience at the Academy Awards, crossing his fingers that he gets Best Director and Best Picture, and he sees this guy win one. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, when you're sitting on top of the world, it's just, you know, I can easily say it's just like, Wow, that guy made a neat little, well, and, neat little documentary. And I, would, I would love to make something like Cordy that. Cordy is a big deal in the Bay Area scene. His barn turned studio was an inspiration for both Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola to establish their own studios in the Bay Area. There you go. Wow. Yeah, and also this is not the only other time that Lucas uh, threw Cordy a bone. I don't know the context of it, and I would love to know more. Do you guys know what else Cordy directed? Mm-mm. Matt, you got a, you got any ideas? Just I have no idea. Pick a random Lucasfilm thing. Throw a dart at a board. Radio Land Murders. I don't know who directed that. I actually, I, I should know. Did he make that new Strange Magic? No, he did not make Strange oh, okay, Magic. Okay, okay. That been weird. He directed the Ewok film Caravan of Courage. Oh wow, interesting. How does that happen? I, it, yeah. The connection, the connective tissue is not there. George picks people that he likes. He does. I mean, it's not even, like, of the two Ewok films, not even my favorite by, by a mile. I like the mm -hmm. second one a lot better. I still got to see them because the last time I saw them, I was a kid, and I don't remember them. They're weird, Doug. I know they're <laughs> weird. Why do you think I've avoided seeing them? Yeah, they they really make you reconsider your <laughs> Star Wars fandom. Not because they're bad, just because they're they're weird. And I don't know. Well. Yeah. It's a weird. It's a weird experience. I'm gonna pound my gavel and say that's the next thing we're doing. That's the next Lucasfilm diversion. And hey, it's even Star Wars. But we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna double feature Caravan of Courage and Battle for Endor. <laughs> so saith Cap. I actually think that would be a very good discussion. Like I think revisiting and like reevaluating the Ewok films in the context of now would be a very interesting episode. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Is I that is is that little girl? Uh... Sindel. Yeah, Sindel is. What's her relation to Ray? It's got to be something. <laughs> it's Ray's, it's Ray's, definitely her mother. Yeah, it's like, is it her sister? Is wait, so wait, but how old would that make her? Would she be age appropriate? Would Sindel be age appropriate to be Ray's mother? Um, yeah, because uh, Ray, <laughs> yeah, no, totally, because Ray Ray was born thirty thirty years or 
Rather, she's like so. Carrie Russell is Sindel. Are we confirming that Carrie Russell is Sindel? <laughs> Confirm right here. <laughs> what if? Just I'm just saying. What if you went online tomorrow and it says like new details about Carrie Russell's character, but like you know whoever fucking report how reporters is like rumors are that it's a character named Sindel. We don't have a last name yet, but Sindel. We're like holy fuck. If if Carrie Russell's character has like a comfort Ewok. <laughs> in like her apartments or something oh my god honestly i don't know if anything andorian would be good for her psyche i feel like she would have been like a like a a terrorized shell of a human by the time she left endor yeah. considering what happened to her family but but wicket became her family Eh, I feel like once she was back, I don't know. <laughs> I'm groaning already. <laughs> uh, so um, before we go on, we want to thank you, fine folks, for making this show possible. We mostly talk about Star Wars, but as we say, we are a Lucasfilm podcast, and we know that there are a billion Star Wars podcasts out there, but we are a Lucasfilm podcast. That's what makes us special. So if you like what we do, if you want, if you like the... Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. <laughs> I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show yeah. is absolutely yeah. incredible. Or anime. Yeah, and under this sure. mask is another mask. <laughs> you can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday wherever you get your podcast, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Little tangents going off on these other films that maybe you never even heard of before and uh, getting a better insight into the world of, and mind of George Lucas. Please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes. Let us know. Yeah, because that's going to help people find us uh, a little easier. Uh, you can also rate and review us on Podchaser. Including specific episodes. Like, if you dig this episode, then you can individually find it on Podchaser and upvote this episode. If it gets in the rankings, more people see it, more people discover it, more people keep having this conversation. In fact, you could even tag this episode as being about animation, and that would then make it easier to discover for people who are looking for animation podcasts. Yeah, and if you tag it as Twice Upon a Time, I'm pretty sure we're going to be the highest rated Twice Upon a Time <laughs> podcast episode of anything out there, so someone can find it. I think one of the Doctor Who specials is Twice Upon a Time. Yeah, so. that, that, yeah that's been a very difficult component of my it's it doesn't change the fact that we will be the best one about Twice Upon a Time. Okay. Yes, yes. Best, you're, you're absolutely right. I thought you meant like most popular, but sure. like, <laughs> you know.
Well, hey, us mentioning but, Doctor Who now means you could tag it with Doctor Who as well because we mentioned it. Go for it. <laughs> You're going to stop listening pretty quickly, but sure. Yeah. Maybe maybe you stuck around and, hey, how you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Please write and review. This wasn't about Doctor Who. One star. If you want to pick up a copy of the film, you can do so by clicking through our Amazon links. This way, when you buy it and anything else you would buy on Amazon goes to supporting the show at no extra cost to you. If you'd like to support the show in other ways, consider checking out our Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash nerdy show, State of the Empire. It's produced in Nerdy Show Studios in Orlando, Florida. If you become a patron on Nerdy Show's Patreon, you'll get some exclusive uh, perks from State of the Empire, like uh, outtakes and other deleted uh, content. Yeah, I've got enough. There's probably a, probably a new one of those coming real soon. A lot of clippings from our cutting room floor. And if you leave a review for us anywhere, let us know. So we can find it and read it on the air. We like to celebrate how you celebrate us. And uh, thanks in advance. <laughs> well, let's get back to Twice Upon a yeah, Time. Yeah. You, know, you know how convoluted that story is and how, how many layers there are? Uh-huh. Well, <laughs> that's because it was uh, there were 14 drafts of the script. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Mum, the character, goes back to the early 1970s. So lots of these ideas were flying around, and this is... I mean, for better and for worse, typically what happens when a creator is working on a project for a long time, it becomes very difficult to streamline all the wonderful ideas they've had, and you end up with the soup. One of my favorite movies, Barry Levinson's Toys, is a similar thing, a more successful thing, I would argue, uh, and you can hear me do an entire podcast about it where I speak to Barry Levinson. We'll link to it on this episode's page, but he was working on it since since the late 70s, and then it came out in 1992. And Mm. so, yeah, there were too many ideas at play for it to be, I would say, in Toy's case, cohesive on the first watch and for Twice Upon a Time's case, uh, cohesive in in general, further confused by the improvised dialogue being an interesting novelty, but not necessarily doing it any favors when it comes to getting the ideas across that enable you to know what the fuck is happening on screen. Yeah. Do you think maybe we weren't inebriated enough? I think that would have been worse. Would it though? I don't. I mean, I don't know. I'm. I'm not a habitual uh, substance taker. Like, <laughs> I just don't. I don't know if that would make it more enjoyable, if even for the wrong reason. <laughs> for the wrong reason, sure, but not trying to get. If you're trying to get a cohesive plot out of it, that is yeah. not. I, help. I'm not saying it would make more sense so much as it would be more enjoyable. I have seen Twice Upon a Time on a list of uh like <laughs> great movies to see while stoned like that in my brief research i definitely came across it as like number 13 in a list of like 50 films dope <laughs> i mean seriously though i cannot emphasize enough if you love animation you have to check this out and yeah do what you have to do but your eyeballs well thank you it's so crazy especially god especially that tracking shot under the train yeah and in the, the opening sequence there's some very uncharacteristically cool music in this movie. Yeah. That's why I, I was I got hyped for the first I'll say this. If you do decide to to check this movie out, watch the first 20 minutes. And if you say I could take another hour of this, then you can finish it. If you say, "You know what? That's enough for me. I if I stop here, I won't I won't worry, uh, you know, then go ahead and stop and then you can do whatever you want." But if you're a fan of animation or the history of animation or or, or just weird, quirky stuff in general. Yeah, you can't go wrong with well, the first Well, here's what I'd say. Part Ra- of this. Rather than being able to blanket, say, 20 minutes, because I don't know where that is in the plot, once the nightmare bombs go off, the the big ones, once time has stopped and those go off, then you've, you know, you've if you're not sufficiently dazzled to keep watching, that is the apex. But that's like me. two-thirds of the way through the film, isn't it? It's incredible. I don't know. If, <laughs> I don't know. Like, 
maybe 20 minutes or there or whatever. You know I what? Don't know. Watch until you get uncomfortable. I don't know. If, fuck if, it. If Mr. <laughs> if Mr. Rapey McRape uh, is, shows up, then you might want to check out, you know, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't blame you. Which I felt that was also like pretty late, two thirds of the, oh, like, yeah. I feel like he, he showed up late. Yeah. Rod, Rod Rescueman showed up very late in the plot. I mean, it's played for laughs. Like he's he's the heel of the scenario, right? Just just and, to, and to he, further emphasize this, yeah. he's not, and he does not literally rape anyone. Yeah. Okay, but he and he's not but, he's not evil. He's just a dumbass. He, he's he's a he's a toxically masculine dumbass. Yeah. who aggressively puts the moves on flora fauna, right. In a way that like that is entitled and like I mean I I mean he, th- he thinks he's a prince charming hero like ha ha I'm here to save you and then immediately. It's like I saved you, so give it up, you know. And yeah. she's just like, uh, "No, thank you." And she's trying to leave. I mean, and he, he's like Pepe Le Pewing her. Yeah. What's What's different about this from Pepe Le Pew is that there's there's nothing cute about this motherfucker. No, no. But I mean, and it is he is the bad guy in this in that scenario. Right. Like you're not rooting for him per se, but they also hand wave his actions in a way that I'm I'm not using our 21st century perspectives to necessarily like judge this film because it is like it he, his actions are meant to be like. You not, you are not supposed to sympathize with this guy, right? But the thing the thing that they do that is like very of its time is that he's still treated as an okay person even after like he really makes Flora miserable. Yeah, so that's that's odd. But um, but still, they, he seems kind of dumb, and they keep him at an arm's length. Anyway, just to just to clarify that element of it. Uh, but let's let's go back to this to this title music. Let's play a clip right now. Let's get really pumped. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that is Bruce Hornsby in 1983. Now, what makes that remarkable? Well, the range, Bruce Hornsby's band, was formed in 1984, and the way it is, his debut record did not come out until 1986. This is the earliest Bruce Hornsby song I've ever heard, and it kicks ass. Huh. And that just didn't even like click for me, that it was that much before Bruce Hornsby as we know it. That, that's in, it, It's... I liked the music in the movie, but that was another thing. The music felt already much later than the animation. <laughs> yes. So, like, that threw me off completely from the get-go. Yeah, no, it, it feels totally wrong. All the music is totally wrong because the music is of its time, very much so. Uh, and, and, and and the movie is not... I mean, animation takes takes time, but even still, production did begin uh, in the 80s. Unfortunately, it just... It is just still it, it already passed. And in retrospect, you know, there's there's nothing wrong with it, but you're just thinking like the eighties were so image obsessed. This was not fresh. Yeah. And uh, another thing reminded me of another film, uh that Jester character for the main bad guy. Yeah, the 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 uh, synonymous Bosch has a um uh, an assistant character who's a is a jester who's a really neatly animated figure who's like kind of like his body parts are sort of disconnected. But he's basically Pinocchio from Shrek. Like, there's a lot of Shrek influences throughout this movie, but that voice in particular is just, 
well, I'm just doing my things. It's it's exact. It's Pinocchio from Shrek. Like just, it's identical. I wonder if it's the same voice actor. And if it isn't, then it's definitely copying the voice. That's that's fascinating. I uh, I had not considered that at all. Yeah. Yeah, sir. I I feel like this movie is like a. Um, I mean, it'd be naive to say that like this was like a. a a branch of animation that just like came to like a, a complete end that it didn't influence things that came after, but like definitely the strokes of this style of animation sort of like kind of ended around now, like actually probably a little earlier than this, but it was, it was almost like this was the most of what was possible with this. Like we're going to show off all kinds of new techniques with this Lumage like type animation. And then, you know, just got everything that could possibly get out like the cool nightmare bombs and like the the stuff they were doing mixing in live action models and things like that and then you know and then that branch of animation died yeah that yeah very much so it's a weird movie <laughs> and it's weird it, i don't know it, it's a weird yeah i don't know it's it's strange that it, it came under the lucasfilm banner well there's some other music to discuss but we will do that towards the end let's let's circle up to the lucas component to this so there's not a lot of details on exactly how things went down written per se on the on the internet but based on the uh commentary i was able to get some details on how all of this went down um Cordy got 30 investors together to help finance a demo for what the film could be which i haven't seen it might be lost to time i'm not sure uh, it's not on the DVD. He then showed George Lucas, who said he would show it to Alan Ladd. Oh. The man where the money comes from. The man whose uh, script we've seen for, for Willow, the script that was used to f- get funding yeah. to finance Willow. Hmm. Now, of course, that happened. That script was from, what, 86 or so? Um, and this would have been 82 or something. So at this point... The Ladd Corporation, the same company that uh, bankrolled Blade Runner, existed. Um, So George made the deal happen, and then after that, and I quote, frankly, George had very little to do with it after that. Hmm. So So George just kind of shepherded it for a little bit, like to get it into the— the money it needed. Yeah, even even saying that he shepherded it is overly generous. He basically just—he just helped finance it, and finance it, I suppose, in such a way— to put Lucasfilm's name at the top of this as a reason you should see it. Um, so that, you know, I mean, he... Well, either he, way, he was okay with that. Yeah, he, lent, he, he lent his name to yeah. it, which is not which, not common. Right. So clearly he believed in this filmmaker. Yes. And I like... See, I like this side of George where it's just like, you know what, this is weird, kooky, no one else is going to do it, but I dig it. You know, like, that George. Like, mm-hmm. that's what makes it a Lucasfilm even though he may not have had anything creative to do with it, you know? His his passion and him saying, like, I've got all this power and money now. Let's Let me make do something happen. good with it. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. that is that is one of the things that I love the most about him. Um, now, the Ladd Company, Alan Ladd, from everything I've ever heard about him, he sounds like a great guy, a guy who just wants to make cool things happen and doesn't really care how it gets done. But unfortunately... There is a time and a place where those business decisions need to be more businessy than not. And uh, the Lad Company was nearing bankruptcy when this film was reaching completion. They had to choose between putting Twice Upon a Time into limited release or worldwide release, and they had to make the same decision simultaneously about the right stuff. 
They decided to release Twice Upon a Time into limited release, and there were a few early screenings. Um, but both of both Twice Upon a Time and The Right Stuff failed at the box office and caused The Lad Company to shut down. Obviously, right Stuff is a great film, though. Well, yeah, and you know, I was I was thinking like Right Stuff. How did how did The Right Stuff in 1983? How did that movie perform poorly? It's uh, I mean, it's an if you're not familiar with it, it's an it's based on the book, which is a nonfiction account of all the various stories of the astronauts leading to, you know, like through the Mercury program, yes. and the Gemini program. And it's uh, it's it's wonderful. The book's wonderful. The film's wonderful. How how did that bomb? I didn't realize it was a bomb. It's yeah. a classic now. Well, I watched the trailer. It's a hot fucking mess. Oh. It sells this as this like weird patriotic, um, not cool movie. It doesn't look. It's it's about the astronaut program, and somehow they made them look not cool. It's a terrible trailer. The, and the, the irony behind that is, I won't say what the end of the movie is, but the end of the movie is nothing but people saying, that's a cool motherfucker right there. <laughs> like, like, like it's, it's literally about them saying how they don't make them like this anymore. They got the right stuff, hence the title. So it's like, to make the point of the movie, the opposite reaction that you get from watching the trailer, oh, that's awful. I mean... It may not have helped that the movie's a long film, so True. you can only show it so many times a day, especially in those theaters. In those, it's days. a long book too. Yeah, I mean, there was still a lot a of lot single, of history to cover. There were still a lot of uh, single theater movie houses back then. Yeah. So you say, do I show the right stuff three times a day, maybe just two times a day, or do I show? Raiders of the Lost Ark like five times a day. Or do I show Twice Upon a Time several times yeah, a day? Yeah, <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I, man, what a shame. Yeah. Uh, so that that was that was a bummer. But clearly, Alan Ladd was still producing fantastic films. He produced Willow after this and a lot of other things. Um, but his cool logo with the tree was never yeah. to be seen again. <laughs> um, now, I want to circle back to some other things that make this movie unique. Every sequence, there's some kind of deviation or experiment using a wide variety of techniques because this this production house, it was a house that they rented in San Francisco, 50 people in a three-story house working insane hours. Wow. Like, with a, like some rooms out back and so on. I mean, this was, this it, this sounds like an absolute insane work environment where everyone was, you know, they were stressed, but they were having fun and they were doing all kinds of experimentation you any scene of it of this incredible environmental textures the likes of which you're, you're just not going to see because it's about the interplay of light yeah um and and the projection it gives it a, a you know a dreamlike quality which was oddly fitting you know and they can do techniques like they interface with real world objects there's a bunch of stuff with magnifying glasses that you're actually seeing it work you're actually seeing the optics in play yeah. using this rear projection thing you're able to actually take advantage of playing with the way the human eye interprets stuff, which normally would have to be faked several times over if you're doing any kind of conventional animation or 3D animation, of, I mean, of any sort. Uh, it really allowed them to, to improvise and have a more tactile experience as they were developing this. That scene where all of Din, the human world, shot in crisp black and white is frozen and the nightmare bombs start to go off yeah. in, in an office place. It is jaw-dropping. 
You have never seen anything like this in your life. It's terrifying. It's ominous. Black smoke billows out of it in this very unusual motion, and it pl- it just it flows over all of these these sh- bizarre shots of like of an office, but taken from low angles because in this world, and I don't know if we said this enough before. Mum and Ralph and everybody else are tiny. They're like they're like three inches tall. Yeah, so everything's very big, and it is it is incredible. Uh, they they programmed corkscrew pans through in, through large environments using early Apple computers tied to stepper motors. They spent almost a year alone with one woman figuring out clips to put on the gorilla's television chest. Ha! Uh, yeah, without the internet. See, that's the thing with YouTube. You're like, oh yeah, just slap that shit together. But man, back in those days. Having to figure out what to show there, to mm-hmm. to contextualize it, yeah, wow, no, that's that would be a hell of a long time. And then turning those into photo transparencies or whatever process they needed to do to, to, to do get it, them to animate yeah. it, yeah. The some of the larger shots, like because they had some, they have some big pans. Like when you're doing animation, like cell animation, when you have a, a pan over a large background, then you might be panning over a larger than average set shot. Some of them. To, to in order to create the rear projection because they were having to build this equipment themselves or you know like repurpose things they used seven foot by 40 inch tables made from shower doors to do the rear projection wow go down to home depot pick up some shower doors we're making a movie folks right <laughs> what, what an achievement and when they're when they're talking about things like the all these animators getting together talking about this in the commentary, some are asking how's it done, and they wouldn't always have an answer. They would have forgotten or not been able to figure it out. Wow! Because like so much of the process, so much of the the finesse of doing certain things, seat of their pants, just like you know. Well, yeah, and 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 we're down to the individuals who attempted that. Like they'll say, "Oh, like so and so did this." Wow, what a nightmare working on that, you know. <laughs> um. So here's how they did the bomb effect. They created layers of phototransparencies of India ink being poured into fish tanks. And that was uh, a, a very complicated effect shot that was operated on um, by a person who's a very big name in the film industry these days. Do you guys happen to know the uh, the burgeoning young person who worked on Twice Upon a Time as like the first film credit of theirs? No. David Fincher. Really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. wonder if he's got some good stories. I, I, I bet he does. He was credited with special photograph effects. It was his first job in the film business. And he assisted on some of the most complicated shots because they, they pulled him in. He really knew his way around Mitchell cameras specifically. And that's what Cordy was like looking for. And he doesn't even really know why Fincher knew this, but he did. <laughs> and uh, so he piloted the motion control shot on black and white objects like going under the train tracks. That was, that him. was him. That was Fincher. Uh, yeah, he was part of doing the India Inc. sequences. And it's crazy because that's like a Fincher trademark now. <laughs> and I mean that seriously, like like moving the camera through things and under things. Yes, like uh, going like, like like all the shots for say like Panic Room and Fight Club, where he yes. would, where you you the sets would be missing objects that would be later added into. Yeah, 
I mean, yeah, one one wonders how instrumental was he in even conceptualizing that because I'm not sure he assisted on it, but was it his idea? I'm not sure. Was it just such a formative experience that he continued to replicate it, like that panic room scene where they move the camera moves through, through the, the banister, handle. Yeah, yeah, or through the the handle of like the coffee uh, thing or whatever? Or it, you know, maybe even if it wasn't something that he brought to it, but when you work on an animated thing like that and you're staring at the same shot for eight hours a day. <laughs> True. You begin to think about it, you know? Like, wow. Here's another thing he did, which I didn't even notice on my first viewing, but in retrospect, it's one of the, it's one of the most hamster effect moments of the entire film. There's a scene where Botch is taking a bath, yeah. which is pretty great. <laughs> and in his bath are mosquito larvae. Really? Yeah. And those, are, those were hand animated by David Fincher. Kind of want to go back and watch it now. Because like, I didn't <laughs> catch any of that. Yeah. It, it, the, the film is filled with things like that. That's one of the be- That's probably the best example of it. But I hopefully, as you, as you hear me talk about this, this is suggesting to you: yes, I really should watch this movie, even though it is not particularly good. <laughs> Another um, big name on here: sequence director Harry Selleck, director of Nightmare Before Christmas and Coraline. Wow. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. It's like no wonder there's so much influence spread across all these other things because the same people worked on it, you know. <laughs> they all this is like all their first gig or like a first major gig. Yeah. Now, Cordy, uh I think it was Cordy, he mentioned something that you also mentioned Doug as a comparison in in terms of the field of influence of Twice Upon a Time that um I think is is fascinating. Botch talking to the vultures. You mentioned you call it, call it like a, a uh, Wicked Witch of the West kind of a yeah, situation. Clearly, yeah. Well, there's a comparison that's actually even more apt. They think Tim Burton ripped them off when the penguin is talking to his penguins in Batman Returns. Oh, wow. Isn't it exactly the same thing? Dude has the same physique, stature. Same little spotlight hits him. And, 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 uh, and the birds all in, they're in all, a lot. Yeah, they're all like layered the same way. And, and the speech itself. Yeah. Thanks to Batman, we're going out there. Show them my butt. It, it really is very similar. I'm kind of shocked, <laughs> but also not surprised. Yeah. So this this movie, pretty uncanny. Just everything about it is is uncanny. And and as soon as we stumbled down this rabbit hole, we knew we got to talk about this. Like we we got to share this. This is such an interesting piece of the Lucasfilm puzzle. That is, it's not, you know, it's not George, but it's because of George. Yeah. And it's so indicative of the the impact that his work or his sphere of influence could have. And the type of person he is that he would do this. Yeah. It is kind of sad talking about what, you know, the kind of things that, that George would help foster that I don't know if, if the Lucasfilm company as it is today, and this isn't a slight against like anybody in particular, like Kathleen Kennedy or Disney or anything like that, but like that type of movie isn't going to get produced under the Lucasfilm banner anymore these days. True. Yeah. I mean, it's not their prerogative. Um, exactly. And and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just kind of sad to think that, that that aspect of the company's legacy will not continue. True. It's like, it's like because of that. So just because George liked this guy and he wanted to give him, you know, the money to, to make this kooky little animated movie that even the movie didn't do that well at the box office even though arguably the movie wasn't very good, the influences have rippled across so many things that we love. 
it it wouldn't have happened you know like i i don't know it is a shame when you think of it that way where it's like is disney gonna use lucasfilm to make a weird little quirky movie that is gonna in some way create a domino effect that will reshape cinema later you know like is well, it- well, no, but but I mean, you're looking at it wrong, Lucas. I mean, because and it's because of the way that we grew up thinking about Lucasfilm. Because to us, Lucasfilm was a brand with a man behind it and was making decisions. I mean, I was a member of the Lucasfilm fan club before it matured, and or well, that's one way to look at it. Before it became Star Wars Insider, mm-hmm. when it was about George and the things that George was helping to produce, like Land Before Time, for example. Yeah, and. That's why we have this sentimentality about the name Lucasfilm and what a shame that Lucasfilm won't be doing it. But Lucasfilm, it's made, it's, that's the title designated to Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and maybe Willow. <laughs> but everything else doesn't matter. However, that said, George Lucas, the man, has very much the time and the money to continue doing what he was doing all those years ago if he wanted to, mm-hmm. which I hope he does because when he parted ways with star wars and his company he said well you know i'm gonna go off and i'm gonna make the little the weird little movies that i always wanted to make now um and i seriously want to see it so bad whatever he wants to make i want to see it and you know for all we for all we know he's out there making them and showing them to no one but his friends or himself or or nobody at all because they're for him and is that in a post people versus george lucas uh you know environment you know like did we did the fan base send him into that realm in which he's only doing this for himself now which is you know also nothing wrong with that but you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain right and by the way this this lucasfilm label that we're putting on these movies like it also applied to lucas arts as a video game company too. very much so yeah I mean, yeah they weren't just making star wars and in indiana obviously that's where the bread and butter yeah. was monkey but island there were <laughs> Like, yeah there's so many like great lucas arts games that weren't star wars or indiana jones because they were trying things. They're still making Sam and Max. I mean, the the, the full throttle. Mm-hmm. Even I even played. I played through the the Day of the Tentacle, and I started playing uh, Maniac Mansion. But Maniac, that was too hard. I couldn't get through Maniac Mansion. But, but uh, yeah, the Lucasfilm shadow casts long, and mm-hmm. that's something that we definitely would like to spend a little bit more time exploring on this program. Because there's a lot to, to say about it. There's a lot to uncover. And the influence of it and the way that Lucasfilm and all of Lucas's works have influenced the world we live in today is, you know, everyone can nod and say, yes, oh, yeah, sure, there was an impact there. But honestly, the, the actual br- breadth of it is underappreciated. Yeah. There's, there's so much more to explore there. So certainly something we'd like to do. In closing, there, there's one other voice here that... They got the opportunity through Twice Upon a Time to, to shine very brightly and then be suddenly silenced. And that is Maureen McDonald, Michael McDonald's sister. She did three tracks for this movie, only one of which was released on a seven-inch single. The title track, in fact. She's fantastic, though she did have a lot of help. These tracks were co-written by Michael McDonald and executive produced by him, and it shows. Because I think that this title track, which we're going to play a clip from right now, I think it's Yacht Rock. I don't say that lightly. I mean tested under the Yachtsky scale created by Gene Yachtsky to determine whether or not a song is Yacht or Nyat. <laughs> so I've submitted this to the only resource for truly defining what is Yacht or Nyat. I've submitted it to Beyond Yacht Rock for review. And hopefully we'll find out sooner or later. But, uh, but I think that we're going to see Maureen McDonald crowned as a woman of Yacht Rock. And uh, I think that this song 
fucking rocks. <laughs> now, if you want a little bit more information about, I mean, if you're confused by this this Yacht Rock thing, I want to I want to put this out here. If you're not familiar with Beyond Yacht Rock or the Yacht Rock web series, this is the or- origination point of the term. And that term has been wildly misused, grossly misused, because the definitions that were created by what is one of the most hilarious web series to ever exist, especially if you're a fan of music history or media history in general, it is actually a very clearly defined genre of Southern Californian artists playing pop music at an extremely high precision in specifically the late 70s and early 80s and some very discernible styles of of jazz-influenced tones that create this moment in music history. However, it is commonly these days, thanks to things like the Yacht Rock Review, a, a touring group of very nice people who, doing things very wrongly, and Sirius XM's Yacht Rock playlist, playlists on Spotify, they don't understand what Yacht Rock is. They're including what is known as AM Gold, songs like Brandy. Heck, even Harmonics, who I place on such a pedestal, the people who make Rock Band, they, they recently unveiled a Yacht Rock pack, a three-song pack, for rock band, which would have been absolute bait to get my money, except that not a single song in it is Yacht Rock. <laughs> it's all AM Gold. And Brandy is a fine song, but it's not a fucking Yacht Rock song. So anyway, um, if you want to get educated on this, legitimately, my favorite podcast that is not something that I produce myself is Beyond Yacht Rock. Those guys are hilarious. They're wonderful. If you love music, you will really love this show, I think, anyway. And definitely check out the web series. So I, this for me, discovering one that Michael McDonald has a sister, who knew? I didn't know. That's cool. And then finding this, this wonderful gem of Yacht Rock inside of Twice Upon a Time, mwah. <laughs> I'm excited. I, I'm. I mean, granted, I'm pronouncing it yacht rock. That's my opinion. Hopefully, um, in a future episode of Yacht or Yacht, the Beyond Yacht Rock uh, spinoff show, they will label it. It'll be on, listed on yachtornyacht.com. You'll be able to see what ranking it got. If it's below fifty, it's yacht rock. <laughs> End musical PSA, podcast PSA, whatever. Let's groove to the tunes of this more or less unreleased track here. And the, the two other songs completely, you, you, can't get, you can't get this stuff anywhere. You got to buy a 7-inch off Discogs or eBay. That's how you're going to hear this otherwise. So here's Maureen McDonald with a theme from Twice Upon a Time. I'm glad. 
State of the Empire is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. Check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television podcast programming at consequenceofsound.net. This show is recorded and produced in Orlando, Florida at Nerdy Show Studios, home of the Nerdy Show Network. Geeky programming for all nerds across the multiverse. Discover more at nerdyshow.com. Our theme song, Maximum Rebo, was written and performed by Zantilla. Find more awesome tracks at zantilla.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to our Bothan pals in the Star Wars Spoilers Facebook group, the Nerdy Show Network Patreon backers, and Synonymous Botch, a terrible little fellow with the most inspired rotten little mouth. Consequence Podcast Network. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.